Going Linux, episode 373, Listener Feedback. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. And I'm your co-host, Bill. Whether you're new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about moving to Linux, this podcast will provide you valuable information and advice that will help you in Going Linux. We hope that you'll find this and all of our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and open source applications and using them to get things done. If you want, you can send us feedback at our email address at goinglinks at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 1-904-468-7889. In today's episode, listener feedback. That should be no surprise to anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Bill, how are you? Good, Larry. How are you this fine day? Wonderful. I am uh, continuously impressed that every other episode we have enough email and feedback and audio recording to fill up an entire episode. This is great. Our our community is wonderful. Yeah, we even got some, uh, Nancy who sent us a voice submission, which we love. Yeah, yeah. We haven't heard from Nancy in a while, so thanks, Nancy. Um, so why don't we just jump right in and play that audio feedback from Nancy? All right. Okay, here we go. Hi, Larry and Bill. Um, I wanted to talk about the lady that um, kind of overbought her computer. First of all, knowing that she is not tech savvy, she may have misrepresented to the salesman what she needed based on her understanding, and he may have sold her based on what she told him rather than doing what a good salesman should and really figure out what she really needed. Also, There may be, when we think of accountants, we think of spreadsheets, but an accountant uses other software. And if she is a practicing accountant, she's probably not just using QuickBooks. She may be very well using some other proprietary software, which may need the professional version of Windows. Uh, Windows 10 Professional gives you a lot more control over software updates than Windows 10 Home, although Microsoft has relaxed some of the requirements for software update, probably based on customer backlash and and market testing. But the professional version does still have a lot more control over when the updates are applied. You do also, with the professional version, have quite a bit of control over when restarts so, happen well, after she's got installation. basically three points maybe the lady overbought the computer because that's what she told the salesperson she needed maybe she uses something other than spreadsheets i think our comment on spreadsheets was more of an offhanded kind of meant yeah. to be a half joke sort of thing but you're right nancy quickbooks and other proprietary software is probably what she needs uh, and um her her point on the professional version of Windows 10 giving you more control over updates and when you apply them and when the restarts happen. So, yeah, what do you think, Bill, on any one of those? I can't. I can't argue with her. She made great points, and she's exactly right. The uh, only thing is, um, we we had talked about. I was helping a person with. Um, one of their Windows 10 installs, other than the new different version. Different person, right? Yeah, different person. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, I think the uh, the Home and Pro uh, versions of Windows 10, I think they have it where you can pause um, an update for seven days. Um, but that uh, that's it. On the new one, I'm not sure because... Uh, I remember looking at it, and, and there was a new button because this was the latest version of pushing out over the um, uh, 1803, or I think this is the 1903, whatever they call it. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, I was listening to Windows Weekly, and I believe they said that uh, now you're able to pause the updates for seven days, and then Enterprise um, – they can pause it for 30 days, but there's another uh, thing where they can 
push it off for a year or whatever, but or a couple years because they're managed by IT. They have to have a special program, I think, to do it. I don't know. <clears throat> Side note, I think both of them can do seven days. So I don't know what the advantage of a pro. I know pro has some additional features that, um, you know, that is just for pro users, but mm-hmm. it, I don't have to buy a, a, um, uh, an advanced copy of uh, Linux Pro or anything. I get everything from you know from the base install. No, just kidding. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so I think they did listen to feedback from their users, and they did uh, uh, put that where they can pause it for seven days. But after yeah. that, I don't think you can. But don't take it. Uh, and not no Windows bashing. Nothing. That's what I observed. Um, and if I'm wrong, please let me know. <laughs> I'm sure they will. Yeah, yeah. I, I've i heard the similar sorts of things. I don't listen to Windows Weekly anymore. I haven't for a long time. But I do listen to the Mike Tech Show podcast from Mike Smith. He's a, mm-hmm. um, a Windows tech and a Mac tech that helps people with their hardware and software and manages servers and things like that. So he, um, I may have this not quite right because I don't use Windows on a regular basis, but my understanding is there are a few differences between the home version and the pro version, as you just described, or the enterprise version of Windows. And I think if I've got this right, there may be a difference between the way it would be set up for home, which is uh, you're, you're not on a domain, you're not a managed domain where there are multiple computers networked oh, okay. together and on a domain, there may be some additional tools or some additional settings in windows 10 itself that give you more flexibility and more control over the updates and how long you can push them off. I heard something about um, uh, BitLocker being included in it or I don't, I don't know. Yeah. There's, there's certain things that pro users have. So yeah, so Nancy, uh, again, you were exactly right on all those points. Uh, thank you for straightening us out because she was, she was right. Aww. Yeah, and she was nice about it. So thanks. Nancy. And she was nice. She didn't, she didn't say I was an idiot. So that's always a good thing. She didn't say either one of us was an idiot. And that's a bonus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's a bonus. <laughs> all right. So Frank, uh, provided a comment on the file, uh, manager flummox, uh, he said, I find myself puzzled by Larry's assertion in episode 372 regarding having multiple desktop environments installed in an OS. In particular, his statement that the file managers associated with the different desktop environments may conflict leaves me scratching my head. The only conflict that I can think of is related to preferred applications. For example, if you have KDE and MATE installed on a computer as I do over there on, on the right he's put Kaja <laughs> <laughs> uh, may want to open a video in VLC and Dolphin may want to open it in Dragon Player. I find this to be uh, hardly as we used to say on the road a critical defect. It's at most an irritation and one easily remedied if one cares to remedy it in system settings. Perhaps my puzzlement is related to my having started my Linux experience with Slackware, which comes out of the box with two desktop environments and four window managers. I have commonly run multiple desktop environments because Though I am not necessarily a fan of KDE, I, I usually use uh, Fluxbox as my graphical user interface. I am a fan of KDE applications, which in my humble opinion, kick GNOME applications to the curb. So I tend to install KDE on any distro I'm using. I'm curious to hear whether you can give an example or examples of critical conflicts between multiple desktop environments on a single OS. Thanks. Frank, uh, yeah, I agree with you that these are not critical defects. I don't think I use the term critical or critical conflicts. The conflict that you mentioned about preferred applications is the one I had in mind when I was talking about conflicts between the settings for the different desktop environments. And as long as 
your KDE desktop and your GNOME desktop and your Mate desktop and your Cinnamon desktop all installed on the same operating system have the same settings for preferred applications, then no conflict, no problem. Um, but uh, there there may be others. Uh, I don't have any in mind, uh, any conflicts between multiples, but um, that's definitely the one that I had in mind. So you're right on point, my, uh, Frank, and I think that your your point is well taken, that these are not critical things that are difficult to resolve. They could be confusing to a new user, though, who has suddenly the ability to install multiple desktop environments and doesn't know that this is coming, right? There may be a a little difference in the way they work as well. You know, there's some features in Cinnamon's desktop environment, the file manager in particular, that um, are not provided in some of the other desktop environments, file managers. So, and and same with KDE. It has some things available in there that are not available to others. I'm thinking about things like uh, the newly announced for Cinnamon, the newly announced ability to uh, script right-click context menus in Cinnamon's uh, file manager uh, that isn't available in many others. I mean, sure, you could make it work uh, in others. And I seem to remember uh, quite a few years ago having the ability in one of the file managers to actually create your own right-click menus uh, from within the file manager itself, which is my understanding what um, Cinnamon is doing. But... It's been a long time, so I may be remembering that completely incorrectly. Anyway, um, bottom line here is, Frank, you're right. Uh, and I don't know of any critical conflicts, but there are certainly some things that you need to be aware of if you're a new user to Linux and suddenly you have the ability to um, use multiple desktop environments. Don't expect them to work identically to one another. That's why we have different desktop environments. <laughs> Now, uh, Frank was right. None of these are critical, uh, Larry, but I would consider them annoyances. I'll give you an example of annoyance. So uh, when I was running Ubuntu Mate, the Fire Manager, it does the same thing, but I was used to the Ubuntu uh, GNOME version of it, you know, the the it's so it's different it's similar enough but certain things are you know didn't feel the same and i had to sit there and think about it at one time i installed a video player to come with uh kubuntu and i was you know and i didn't know how to set at that time the preferred applications so every time i would open it it would um i i found i didn't like it so i couldn't figure out for a little while why it kept opening um this file man, uh, this video player <laughs> and i wanted the other one mm -hmm. so it, it's a simple thing but not it's not necessarily um you know uh transparent in if you're new and i think that's what we were trying to get at is you know someone says oh i'd like this program and says and then so when you install a kde app it has i'm almost 100 percent sure it has to install a bunch of like the qt back end to make it work um if i'm not too badly mistaken so what you were trying to get at is that the programs essentially do the same thing some of them do more than others. Some of them do uh, it the same way, uh, and some of it do, do uh, does the same things, but does it a different way. So it's sometimes confusing because uh, you might say, "Oh, I really want this because I like the way it looks," but it's a, a QT application and not a GNOME. So not everybody's going to know that they can set the preferred applications in their uh, OS. Does that make sense? Right. It does. It does. Yeah. So I think that's I think that's basic what it is. But Frank's right. There's nothing that's critical. There are annoyances. But once you know how to set the uh, preferred applications, it's usually not a uh, an issue. And the problem is when you install, uh, like I'm running a uh, stock Ubuntu 1904, 
we are kind of uh, guilty of our own success because we give the distributions give everything to get it to work. You know, you've got your web browser, you've got your office suite, you've got your video players, you've got your uh, music players. So uh, when someone wants something else and it, you know, and it's different, uh, it, they don't usually tell you, okay, by the way, you probably want to set this as your default uh, application. Mm-hmm. So, so that's yeah. Documentation, because uh, most people install it and it just works. And so, yeah. So I, I didn't know for a little while that I could set what I wanted uh, to open for certain files. And once yeah. I did, it, it doesn't make a difference. But that that whole new user thing is like sometimes they won't know. So Frank's right. <laughs> right. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, our Frank. next, yeah, our next feedback is from Kubuntu, who asks about <laughs> moving settings in Ubuntu. Dear Larry and Bill, going Linux is one of the staples of my podcast diet. So I thank you for 373 informationally nutritious digital servings. And note that at the rate you're going, the celebration of Going Linux episode number 400 is only 14 months away. Given any thought as to how to celebrate that milestone? Not yet, Kubuntu. So if you have any ideas, (laughs) let us know. Uh, I wonder if you could point me to a fast way of moving settings from one Ubuntu Mate installation to another. I don't mean copying the current installation to another hard drive. Instead, I'm looking for a way to transport a block of settings, like customized keyboard settings and key combinations, for example, from a computer that's being, quote, perfectly customized to a new installation. That would save a lot of tweaking time, hassle on the new setup. I'm tempted to throw in a few other questions, but I think that's enough for this email. <laughs> Thanks for your regular contributions to the community. Regards, Kubuntu. Kubuntu. Um, yeah, Kubuntu. Yeah. So, Thanks. Uh, yeah. Uh, send all your questions. We can use it. We'll answer as many as we can and we'll deflect. Or try. Can't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, any th- I have some very specific things that I have in mind here. Uh, what about you, Bill? Any suggestions? Uh, actually, uh, yeah. So in your home folder, if you go and look, um, you'll have to enable uh, the show um, hidden files. So if you do that, you'll see a bunch of configuration files. I don't know, um, Larry, if if that's what you were thinking of, but it's exactly uh, what I was thinking of. <laughs> so you could copy those onto a, I guess a uh, like a, a a USB drive, thumb drive, and then you could copy it to your new install. But the only thing I'm wondering is if he doesn't have. The you know say he has like four or five different programs installed and should he install those programs before he uh, you know copies those uh, back? You know it doesn't matter whether they're there before or after. Um, what happens is if you uh, copy them over. So these are the dot folders, right? With all the yes. settings, they're hidden folders. And on most of the file managers, you type control H and that enables them. Otherwise there's something in the view menu that lets you view hidden files and folders. Um, yeah. Yeah. So if you copy them over first, uh, when you install the application, it begins using those configurations and everything is set the way you, you normally would. If you uh, install the applications first and you run the application before you've uh, moved over your configuration files, it will set up new configuration files. But when you copy them over, it's going to offer to overwrite them you know, the ones that it created with the ones that you're copying over. And the ones that it created are going to have a more recent creation date. So just be careful there. Uh, And if you do overwrite them, then it's going to work just as it was before. In fact, what you and I are suggesting here, Bill, is exactly what I do when I get a new hard drive or when I create a new installation from scratch of Ubuntu Mate or whatever distribution Mm -hmm. I'm using, Uh, or if I want to set up exactly the same configuration settings 
in a second computer or in a virtual machine or whatever. I use those configuration files. Uh, and I use them selectively. So I back up everything in my home folder, which is where those configuration files typically reside. Uh, so I back everything up onto a, an external hard drive. And then when I do a fresh install, I copy back, you know, the desktop folder, if I have anything there, documents and downloads and, and the going Linux folder. Yes, I have one of those pictures and templates and videos <laughs> and all the standard folders, right? But then what I do is I ensure that I uh, copy over the dot config folder. Um, I use Dropbox, so I copy over the dot Dropbox folder, uh, and I copy over any configuration folders right there in my home directory that uh, relate to software that I'm going to install on the new system. So if there's something that I've stopped using or something that I'd prefer to set up with new configuration settings, I don't copy that over. Um, that dot config folder, by the way, and I think this does not matter what desktop environment you're using. I think it works in a very similar way, especially if you're using a Debian derivative. If you're reusing a Red Hat derivative, it may be a little bit different than some of these locations. But in that .config folder, you'll find things like the file manager uh, settings, preferences, uh, things for uh, anything that comes with your machine, like the text editor, the uh, the dock, you know, the icon dock, uh, LibreOffice, um, all those will be in there. Any any base level application that comes with your system and has preference settings, uh, typically you'll find them there. So that's a good one to start with. Make sure you copy that one. But many of the other applications themselves will have their own configuration folder right there in your in your own personal home folder. And just copy those over. That will take care of 99% of the application settings that you're talking about, Kubuntu. So I think that's the recommendation. Um, there may be tools for moving those over. But hey, just uh, click and drag, uh, <laughs> or or rsync, um, or something like that. Just make sure that if you're using a command line tool, that you choose the switches and options that allow you to move hidden folders and files. That's the secret. I, I like the drop and drag method. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Me too. I'm a graphical user interface kind of guy. Yeah. So our next email comes from Highlander who com commented, isn't this odd? Not long ago, I sent an email regarding voice, uh, phone call security. Stuff like this happens. And he, uh, there's four links to some news stories that we put in the show notes. And he writes, the first one is Rogers is experiencing a network outage. Two, out outage problems at mobile service providers causing voice service issues. Three, causing of Wireless outage unclear. Uh, TELUS uh, Bell said it uh, originated with other carriers. And fourth is massive Rogers wireless outage. Now, isn't uh, Rogers a Canadian carrier, Larry? Yeah, so Highlander is in Canada. Uh, oh, okay. TELUS is a telephone company up there. Bell is a telephone company up there. And Rogers is oh, okay. a... Is a um, they're a cable TV company. I think they offer wireless as well. Oh, so okay. there you go. So he and he finishes his email by saying, "I really don't know if these, if there's any connection. Maybe <laughs> you know, maybe the hackers that caused all these outages uh, listened to Going Linux and heard your comments, Highlander, and uh, that's a res direct result of of your comments." But well, then actually, again, maybe actually, not. I was pulling out these fuses from in while I was in Canada, and I don't know if that had anything. Uh, to do with yeah, that. that yeah, yeah, nothing at all. <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> Moving right along, uh, Josh has a software recommendation. I recently checked out a new piece of software and wanted to recommend it to you and the community. It's 
NextCloudPi, and he provides a link that we'll have in the show notes. NextCloud is a suite of client-server software for creating and using file hosting services. It's functionally similar to Dropbox, although NextCloud is free and open source, allowing anyone to install and operate it on a private server. NextCloud Pi makes setting up a server on a Raspberry Pi very attainable to novices like myself. It uses a GUI to set up all the different configurations that I need included, but not limited to cron job for IP changes, cert bot for security certificates, and even a couple free and open domain services, all for a computer that costs me less than $100, including the external hard drive. Last year, I sat up an own cloud server, and it took me almost a week to figure out. Using NextCloud Pi, it took about an hour. If you haven't checked it out, it might be good use for new Raspberry Pi or for an old one, since you might have an extra one that's been replaced by a Pi 4. Thanks for excellent podcast, Josh. All right, so Bill, there you go. You're you're looking at maybe getting a Raspberry Pi. This might be just the thing for you. Uh, I don't. I have enough to do with. Them. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I think you do. Come on, you know, there's only so much that the uh, uh, Going Lays podcast uh, tech lab can handle. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this is very tempting. Um, Yeah, it is. I have a Pi 3 collecting dust right now. Uh, This might be something I would install on there. So uh, maybe we'll have a review of this uh, in a future episode. But in the meantime, if you're interested, uh, we'll have the link in the show notes. Larry, you like anything that's efficient. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, true. <laughs> Guilty. So, so Benjamin writes us, and he has a problem booting Linux ISOs on a Windows 10 1903. Oh, didn't weren't we just talking about 1903? <laughs> okay. <sighs> okay, breathe. Okay. So he writes, hi, guys. I'm having a bear of a time booting Linux ISOs from USB ISOs. I, I'm trying to boot a Sabian 1309 Mate. I have a i3 Dell laptop with 8 gigabytes of RAM. I'm using Rufus with GPD UEFI options selected. I hit F12 immediately upon seeing the Dell logo at startup, and I see my USB UEFI ready to be highlighted. I thought I had successfully, uh, I had a successful image, but the boot process hangs up partway through leaving me at some sort of prompt. So I tried reburning the ISO using the same Rufus settings. Now I just boot into Dell Assist after selecting the USB. I'm on the not so greatest, uh, of Windows 10 versions 1903. Sabion seems to support UEFI, but getting to boot has been partially hit, but mostly missed. Any suggestions? Thanks. I was having similar issues when I tried to use UEFI. I found I just go into BIOS and enable legacy. Yep. Yeah, I think that's exactly what the setting says on, on Dell's is enable legacy boot. And uh, made sure secure boot was off, and it worked. So I I don't know if that's an option, um, but you could give that a try if you're if you're willing to try that. Uh, I for some reason I have never been able to get uh, Savion to boot successful, successfully on my Alienware, and Alienware is owned by Dell. So, you know, I, I know what he's talking about when it boots to the assist and you know, wants to check all the memory and all that stuff and you have to right. hit e- escape. Uh, so I would suggest that, um, everything else seems to work, uh, okay. Fedora's a hit or miss, but almost all the Ubuntu's, uh, and Debian seem to work just fine. So, you, uh, I would say, um, if you want one that will probably work out of the box without having to tinker too much. And if you want a mate, look at uh, Ubuntu mate uh, because uh, they both have the same desktop. And frankly, 
Um, but the only thing you're really losing is uh, Sabion's a rolling release, so it's always getting updates. Uh, and uh, Ubuntu Mate's on the uh, uh, Ubuntu release cycle. But if you go with the 1904, you'll have the some of the latest and greatest. Or you can go with the... Uh, uh, the 1804, which is the, the long-term support, which is still support for another, what, two or three years. So, yeah, give that a whirl. And, and do you have any ideas, Larry? Yeah, a couple. Uh, thinking about what could be the cause of this, if this is a brand-new Dell, uh, it may be that the computer has a hardware problem. Um, I ran into that with the very first XPS 13 that I purchased. Uh, it would continuously go into the uh, Dell Assist, uh, and it would it would boot Windows fine. But if I did anything at all to go into the uh, UEFI settings, it would always try to go back to Dell Assist, and then after a while, it it wouldn't even boot into Windows. And of course, I was trying to get Ubuntu installed on there. Uh, and I was following Dell's uh, instructions on how to do that. And it just wasn't working out. Turns out that it was, in fact, a hardware problem. I sent it back and rather than fix it, they just sent me a new computer. And that worked just fine after that. I didn't have that problem. I did have to go in and use the uh, enable legacy boot option. I have had other Dells where I didn't have to do that. Uh, and it really depends on the model. It depends on which version of UEFI they have installed. Uh, and so there could be a number of different things going on here. But if it's still under warranty, I would have them check out the the hardware, make sure that it's still okay. There there could be a problem there. And uh, failing that, yeah, the, it, it, turning on legacy boot or turning off secure boot, which whichever setting is in your UEFI, um, uh, that's that's the suggestion that I would have as the first suggestion beyond checking out the hardware. I have one more. Um, mm -hmm. Check check to see if he has the the most up to date BIOS release. Oh yes, yes, that's that's a good one as well. Yeah, update the BIOS. Um, that could have a, an impact on it. Those UEFI settings are often updated in those BIOS updates, and it it could be you got a problem there. So check those things out. I think that's enough to get you started. And if you've tried all of those, write write back Benjamin, and if uh, if you get it fixed, write back as well and let us know what fixed it for you. David provided a minty update. Hi, Larry. Hi, Bill. Sorry, Bill. You only get top billing if you pay your bill. Uh, I just <laughs> noticed this in the Linux Mint monthly news posted yesterday as of the day he sent the email in. I uh, thought I'd point it out to you in case you're interested and otherwise would not have seen it. We'll have a link to that news post provided by David, but just a quick summary. Uh, talking with the media is what it's entitled. A new Slack team was started for journalists, bloggers, YouTubers, and podcasters to get in touch with us directly and more easily. The idea behind this team is for the media to be able to quickly ask us questions, for us to give scoops, and for this blog to not be the only source of information about Linux Mint. We also encourage authors to let us know about their videos, articles, and podcasts. That allows us to talk with them privately, to react to their content, to answer questions it might raise, and to explain design decisions. Sometimes the content leads to improvements with Linux Mint, and it's also nice to be able to follow up. If you're a journalist, a blogger, a YouTuber, or a podcaster, and you're interested in getting in touch with us, let us know by email. If your media is serious and doesn't show bias or promote controversies, We'll be delighted to work with you and share more information about us and the projects we work on. And uh, David signs his email bestest, uh, and he doesn't fill out the rest uh, that he normally fills out. I think he's given up on that. We've read it so many times, it almost comes <laughs> to mind right away, memorized, all that. So, David in Israel, uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, David. Oh, that's that's a nice feature. That should help him get uh, more news about uh, that will help, man. Yeah, and less fake news. 
Yeah, that's fake news. <laughs> you had to use that fake news, didn't you? Just once. Okay. Uh, Jim has answers for the grub question in episode 371. Dear Larry and Bill, Regarding episode 371, Ubuntu LTS long-term support releases are supported for five years, I think. Uh, don't hold me uh, to that, but I know that 1604 is supported until April 2021 or five years. Why won't she boot? Uh, Roe, sorry about the spelling, because uh, he spelled it R-O-E, uh, asked why uh, she won't boot. I'm not certain, uh, but this might help. He is trying to boot from a USB drive. In my experience, you need to install Linux to a USB drive and not other hard drives connected. During installation, Grub configures itself uh, to boot from the USB but also adds the other hard drives in its configuration. I found this out when trying to make a USB bootable uh, thumb drive to boot any computer for diagnostics. After installing uh, Linux, Ubuntu Mate, to the USB uh, when plugged into computer one, and later trying to run Mate from the USB plugged into computer two, I found errors as it was trying to find the missing drives. The missing drives were, of course, in the original Computer 1 and not accessible to the USB drive system plugged into Computer 2. So my solution was to uh, internally unplug all hard drives from the computer when I was installing Mate on the USB drive. Then Grub did not try to find any hard drives and just boot whatever the USB drive was plugged into. Of course, I had to open the computer cases, which Roe might not be able to do with a laptop. He might be able to use a desktop that he hopefully has access to. Another option is to configure Grub so it does not search for other drives. I am sure this is, there is an instru uh, instruction on the internet on how to do that, but I have never tried. I just yanked the SATA cables on a test computer and be done with it. However, my advice to Rode is to use dual boot and forget the USB uh, boot stuff. You can tweak Grub to make a delay in booting as fast as you want. Uh, that may even be a way to hold some key down uh, during boot to display the boot, uh, the dual boot menu, but have it default with no delay in the default system. This way, there is no external drive either, making the laptop more portable. I am not certain about all of this as I am certainly not a grub expert, but maybe this will point road to some help. Subminion Jim. We have subminions now? <laughs> Apparently, yes, of course. Okay, so Jim, thanks for all that advice. Yeah, the, the grub is a blessing and a curse. It is a wonderful way to control the uh, booting of your computer to multiple hard drives and or multiple operating systems. And the, it's well documented how to do the kinds of things that you're suggesting here. But quite frankly, I do the same thing. If I want a computer to boot to a specific hard drive, I will ensure that that's the only hard drive that is installed in the computer when I... Um, when I install the original operating system. And then there's no confusion. If I'm booting to that drive, it is going to boot to the operating system on that drive and not look elsewhere for other things. So, um, yeah, another thing that I've done in the past is where there have been multiple hard drives on a computer and there's an operating system on one, let's call it uh, Bazindos, uh, and, uh, somebody wants to install uh dual boot and they want, uh, another hard drive with Linux. Uh, but I don't have permission to open the computer to remove the original hard drive. <laughs> um, I will install the operating system with the hard drive installed in a computer that I do have control of install the operating system, then move it over to the uh, computer that's owned by somebody else. And, you know, typically it's a USB drive or something like that. Uh, and then um, plug it in there and it will 
boot up. It will adjust its settings and its drivers on boot to whatever that user has or that person has. And uh, away you go. Uh, yeah. it, it just works. John helps out my memory. He says, I believe it was episode 370. The question came up regarding what the initials slash acronym KVM stood for. They stand for keyboard video mouse and was originally a <laughs> hardware device that you would connect to multiple computers to share one keyboard video monitor and mouse fraternally. John. Yeah. Thanks, John. Uh, I remembered it after we stopped recording, of course, and I couldn't in the moment remember what the V stood for. So thanks. Yeah. I cannot believe we could not think of keyboard video and mouse. Yeah, I know. Oh, thanks, John. Now we got, now I really feel stupid. Okay. I should have figured that one out. Anyway, mm, I'm glad we have John to remind us. Yep. Uh, so our next email comes from Mike, who says that Google Anything cannot be trusted. I have experienced this personally, including on YouTube, Chrome, Google Voice accounts. They are entrapping people with different flavors of Google, complete with cops impersonating others. I am not kidding. This is 60 Minutes or Project Versus material. I had two computers with Google Chrome browsers taking over, one XP and one on Windows 10. Luckily, I had a background in Linux and live distros to the rescue. Okay. Mike, don't run Windows XP. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it's it's no longer being supported. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Any thoughts on that? Um, it's up to you. You know, if you, if you trust Google, fine. If you don't, it's up to you. If you want to use yeah. something else, if, if you don't want to use the Chrome browser, use uh, Firefox or you <laughs> yeah. know, some, something else, anything else. There are plenty of them out there. And Google certainly owns a lot of the stuff that's on the internet. Like you said, YouTube and various other things too. So, uh, whether it's Google or Facebook or Amazon, you can't go very far on the web without running across something owned by one of those three or other proprietary uh, yeah, and, <clears throat> companies. Uh, you kind of have to look at uh, how much you're willing to tolerate uh, as far because, you know, Google makes a bulk of their money through um, advertisements. We know Facebook the same way. Um, what, what was the other Apple? What, what was the other one? Apple, Amazon. Oh, Amazon. Yeah, Amazon, uh, Amazon. So you kind of, kind of have to look at, read their terms of service and see what you're comfortable with. Uh, Larry made a great point. If you don't like uh, Chrome, Firefox is uh, right now seem to be in the lead of charging for different anti-tracking features and privacy. So you might want to give them a look. Yep. Okay. Um... I am not going to provide this link. Um, it's a Feedspot blog that Anuj sent us a link to, and he said he founded the blog, or the, he's the founder of Feedspot. Um, anyway, apparently they voted us number three of their top 15 Linux podcasts on the web. We appreciate that, but when I go to your blog uh some of the links aren't working so i don't know whether this is a spam post to try to get people to click through either way uh, i'm not going to provide the link because some of your links don't work if you get that fixed and you are a legitimate site again we appreciate the rating but otherwise um until that's all fixed and edge uh, especially if you're the founder of feedspot i would expect that you're going to uh, take some action on this and improve things. If I never hear from you again, then a caution is probably um, well placed. Anyway. Yes. Okay. Our next email comes from Paul. Uh, and he writes, uh, on Discord, he's having video freezes. He says, hi, Larry and Bill. I hope all is well with you. I always appreciate the work you do in the Linux community. I'm running the latest version of Discord in Linux Mint 18.3 and 19.2 on different machines. 
after about 30 seconds of connection in a video call, both uh, the received and monitored video freezes. Switching servers relieves the problem and the video restarts, but lasts only a few seconds, then it freezes again. Switching servers again yields the same results. I use Discord to keep up with family, and this has happened the last two weeks and seems to be a known problem, but I don't, I, I didn't find much discussion on Discord support chat beyond the link below, which is provided in the show notes. Are you both having the same issue? Thanks, Paul. Uh, I don't use the Discord video very often, but I've, I used it the other day and I didn't have an issue. Uh, you, Larry? I don't use the video on Discord at all, so I can't really comment on it. Um, if there doesn't appear to be any support in the support uh, for Discord, um, I just keep monitoring that and see if uh, a solution comes up, but I don't know what else to offer. It's not something that I'm using at all. So, well, you know, since he said he's using Linux Mint, I know it's, I, I'm almost certain it's, it's nothing they've done. No, I don't think but so. But I would, I would just, uh, shoot him a, a bug report saying, Hey, I've noticed this has happened in 1803, 1902. Just want to let you know about it. Um, and, uh, give him as much information about what version of Discord. Uh, also, um, look to, uh, make sure that, uh, some configuration, uh, has not changed in the settings of Discord. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's about all I can suggest. But yeah, that definitely let the guys know at Linux Mint that you're having this issue. Maybe someone else is, or maybe they know about it and, uh, they can kind of steer you to, how to fix it. Yep. And in my experience, video freezes are most often caused by congestion on your internet bandwidth provided by your internet service provider. Maybe they're throttling your video call. And uh, as does the internet service provider that I use. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's usually either a bad connection. Um, and oftentimes you can fix the issue by hanging up and reconnecting to your video call. But more often than not, I find since I'm using video calls for business and using proprietary services to do that, uh, any uh, freezing is usually due to just throttled bandwidth or low bandwidth or lack of availability of bandwidth if you're on a cable connection, things like that. Okay, our last email is for, from, I don't know whether this is Marion or Marianne, uh, but let's just go with uh, Marianne. Uh, he, he or she provides an Ubuntu LTS correction. Hello, Bill and Larry. Although I am not new to Linux, I still like listening to your podcast and learn something new from time to time. I appreciate your work in this area, and you are a great source of information for new users. However, for that very reason, you should be extra careful to provide correct information. I understand you cannot know everything, but in an episode I just listened to from June, listener feedback, you recommended a listener not use Ubuntu 16.04 because of its end of life and go to 18.04 and that there is basically no difference. There are two issues. As you correctly pointed out, 16.04 is long-term support, but then you said it is end of life. LTS is supported for five years. 16.04 support will end in April of 2021. Second thing, very important, 16.04 is the latest LTS using Unity Desktop. 18.04 is using GNOME. Probably not a difference for a very new user, but definitely a big difference. There are both Unity and GNOME lovers and haters. Again, I hope you take the right, uh, take this the right way as constructive feedback, not as criticism. Best regards from Slovakia. Well, thanks, Marianne. Uh, we do take it as constructive feedback and are definitely appreciate it. If we said that it was end of life, that's definitely a mistake on our part. I don't remember that. It's very possible that I said that. Um, and yes, long-term supports are 
five-year support. I think our comment on not noticing much difference between 16.04 and 18.04, yes, Unity and GNOME are definitely very different in the way they operate, in the underpinnings. Uh, I think my point was more that for somebody new to Ubuntu, the way that it appears is probably not going to look all that much different because the Ubuntu uh, folks, Canonical, have modified GNOME to work as closely to the way Unity works as possible. So they've done a good deal of work to try to make it so that they look the same, behave the same, that sort of thing. So to the casual observer, you might not notice much of a difference, but you're absolutely right. There is a difference. They do work differently. The settings are different. The underpinnings are different. So beyond just a surface look, it's it's definitely different. So uh, we stand corrected on that one. And hopefully uh, the person we were addressing it to is continuing to listen at this point and <laughs> uh, <laughs> didn't uh, get bit in the butt. Okay. I think that was our last one, Bill. It, okay. I was looking. I didn't see any more. Okay. So yeah. that's our last one. Okay. There, there you go. So, Larry, do you have an application pick? I do. And this comes out of the fact that yesterday, our television provider that we use here in the Going Linux Studio home television is DirecTV. Um recently or not so recently purchased by AT&T so now AT&T's DirecTV um CBS and DirecTV have gotten into this little dispute uh <sighs> the way that DirecTV puts it CBS has pulled their programming from DirecTV the way CBS has put it um DirecTV is charging outlandishly high fees for them to be able to offer their programming. So regardless of which side of the argument you stand on, uh, unlike last year at this time when the same thing was threatened and CBS ended up continuing to be offered as a local channel on DirecTV, it is this year been pulled. It has been pulled by um, CBS. So since CBS local programming is not offered on DirecTV as of right now until they resolve this dispute. What DirecTV is doing is they're saying, oh, there is this open source application that you can subscribe to called Locast, L-O-C-A-S-T, that provides free access to your local channels um, in certain markets where they have things set up uh, and if you're in one of those market areas, and the Los Angeles area here is one of those, you can go over to Lowcast. And, oh, by the way, we've added it to the DirecTV apps. And so now all you have to do is click, click, do a little validation setup, and you can now access CBS local stations, weather, news, everything else you normally get uh, from from them. Um, TV shows uh, using Lowcast. What they don't tell you is there are, at least in the Los Angeles area, there are 40-some local channels that are available on Lowcast, and the DirecTV app that gives you access to CBS gives you access to some of the other local channels as well, but certainly not all 42 or whatever the actual number is. It's somewhere <laughs> around 42. Uh, so it's a limited version of Locast. You can go on the uh, internet and look up locast.org. And uh, we'll have a link in the show notes, of course. But they offer, let's see, they offer service in Los Angeles, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Chicago, Houston, Dallas, Sioux, Sioux Falls, uh, Denver, Rapid City, and San Francisco market areas. So you don't have to be in those cities. You just have to be in a geographic area serviced by those. You have to enable location settings in your browser to be able to sign up. Uh, but uh, I have signed up. I actually signed up before this issue with uh, with CBS and have continued 
uh, watching my local news and weather, which is one of the reasons why I'm looking for the local station. There are other ways to get that, but uh, Locast seems to work just fine, and I wanted to kind of bring that to the attention of the going Linux cable cord cutter uh, audience out there. So give it a try, lowcast.org, and uh, see what uh, 46, 40, 46 local uh, it just seems kind of, to, to me, that's not the s- smartest move on DirecTV. Say, by the way, you can use this other service to get a service that we no longer carry. So I would be like, why do I need you then? <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, I'll it's just a- lo- it's just local stations. So if you want, oh, okay. uh, you know, if you want things like Animal Planet or or I don't know Fox News or any of the other cable stations, you're not uh, you're not going to get them uh, through. Yeah, local. but it but it's the st- these uh, online streaming services are getting better and better. So you never know. Oh, oh, they are, and you know this this is a way of. Um, getting your local stations over the internet as opposed to setting up a, you know, a, a separate antenna for just mm-hmm. for local stations. And, you know, if you've got mountains between you and the broadcast tower, that's not going to work too well, <laughs> uh, like, like I do here. And so this is really a, a great solution to cord cutters who still want their local channels and don't want to worry about the, um, uh, disputes between the cable providers and the local television broadcasters. Uh, one thing I did notice, though, is that DirecTV's subset of what Lowcast offers uh, would not connect very well. I think they uh. probably had a lot of uh, demand for it, given that it was just last night that uh, you know, all of the CBS stations just <laughs> dropped. Um, and so maybe maybe it was just a little bit of an overload. But it, when I went to the Lowcast site directly, it worked just fine. So I think it's DirecTV's uh, uh, underestimation of uh, capacity they needed to 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 uh, handle this. So and for our international listeners who don't care about U.S. television uh, cable providers or Internet uh television issues here in the United States. We apologize for our yeah, local sorry. focus. <laughs> it has nothing to do with you. And uh, <laughs> it is of interest to our U.S. audience, I'm sure, though. Uh, Bill, do you have an application pick? I do. And the reason that I picked this is uh, after uh, our we had a quick uh, discussion the uh, last night and uh, about an issue. And uh, come to find out that... Uh, Shotwell has come a long way. So uh, you said it. How fast did you import your pictures, Larry? Uh, I'm not sure how long we were on uh, that audio chat on Discord last night, yeah. but it was probably, what, about 15 minutes, 20 minutes? Yeah, 15. Yeah, something like and that. And it imported 4,000 pictures in some subset of that time because I started it after we – we started talking and it wrapped up about midway. So I'm thinking 4,000 in maybe 10 minutes. Uh, it's an <laughs> estimate. It's a guess. So and then, really and then organized them. <laughs> and then organized them by date. And uh, yeah, it was, it's good. I like it. Yeah. So if you're looking for a good photo import and uh, touch up and all that other stuff, give Shotwell uh, a go. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, somebody's going to say, hey, Larry, only 4,000 pictures. You're a bit of a lightweight, you know? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, those are the 4,000 that I have on this computer's hard drive. <laughs> All the archived <laughs> ones are elsewhere. So anyway, um, yeah, it's it's pretty impressive application. It is uh, really good for organizing your photos. If you double click on any one of those photos, it gives you the option to color correct and remove red eye automatically and all the other things you would expect a photo manager to do. And you don't really have to go out and get a proprietary uh, freedom hating uh, application from Adobe or anyone else to manage your photos. (laughs) You can do it with Shotwell on Linux. Well, they've also made uh, cleaned up the interface. It looks nice. Oh, yeah. It's very, very nice. Yeah. All right. Our next episode, uh, Bill, are we still planning an overview of snaps, flat packs, and app images? We are. 
All right. So maybe that'll be our next episode. Let's say it is. That's that'll you, be our next episode. What do you episode. mean maybe? No, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> okay. Uh, until then, you can go to our website at goinglinks.com for articles and show notes as well as links to download and subscribe. We are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. And if you'd like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining the discussion in our Going Linux podcast community on community.goinglinks.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. 73. Music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.